Frank Hermelitic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. And today I welcome back an old friend, and I'll use the word old advisedly, um, Tone Wheeler, architect, um, lecturer, um, raconteur, lifetime, lifetime um, ALP member, and um, from what I know, also a, a wonderful cook. Is that true, Mr. Uh, Mr. Wheeler? None of those facts are true whatsoever. I don't belong to any political party. I wouldn't want to belong to any party that would have me as a, as a member. Boom Tish, thank you, Groucho Marx. Okay. And and I am the biggest consumer of takeaway, so that's probably a black mark against me. There you go. Um, and a big shout out to Menulog, Menulog out there. So, um, uh, who are not sponsoring this podcast. I was going to say, so Tony, you know, the last time we spoke, it was the uh, January the 28th, which in all things considering with what happened so far, was another world. Um, it was another world, another time, and it was another economic reality, I think. Um, yeah. Since then, obviously, we've had, well, we're still having the pandemic because um, we, we liked it so much the first time, we're now having it for the fourth time. So um, I'm just wondering, if a lot of things have changed in terms of how, the, how governments look at, um, firstly, design you know, or rather infrastructure. And one thing that, that, that is coming to a fore, mainly from architects, but also a little bit from government, um, a little bit for now, is the issue of, of using um, infrastructure more specifically, using so, uh, the building of social housing, low-cost housing, um, as a way of stimulating what has become a fairly, well, what has become a recession, actually. <laughs> I won't mince my words. Um, yeah. We have a long history in this country of, of trying to do social housing. You recently wrote a, an interesting piece on Daisyville here in Sydney. Um, tell me, what are we doing wrong when it comes to social housing? Uh, almost everything. Okay, that's narrowing it down. <laughs> uh, we, don't, we don't have a reasonable understanding of the housing that we have. We don't have a housing policy nationally or at state level. Right. And we therefore don't, everything that flows from that is a matter <laughs> of the things that don't happen. So if I, if I could just paint a little picture about where that housing in Australia really is. Right. Um, quintile analysis, I mean, it starts to sound very technical, but it's just dividing Australians into five equal groups according to income. Mm -hmm. So usually referred to as quintiles. Now the, the top quintile, the people with the, the most money have the ability to not only own a house, but they can own several houses um, all at once. And to give you some idea, and these are figures that are a few years old, the, the income, if you're in that top 20, percent on average is over a quarter of a million dollars a year and the next quintile down are people who own their own home right probably paid off they earn about one hundred and twenty-five thousand on right, average, okay. about half that 
The third quintile, the middle band, is the one that the government spends so much time talking about whether they will afford a house. And affordability is always about ownership. And they are on, on average, an income per household, about 80,000. So there's some people slightly higher than some slower. Now that, that accounts for 60% of the population, which is roughly the amount of home ownership that we have in this country, which by the way, makes us 42nd out of 50 countries in terms of home ownership. We like to think that we promote home ownership and we were the world's leading when we had 50% of homes owned at the time of Federation. But 120 years later, we've fallen hugely in that. But we still have government policy talking endlessly about affordability for that third quintile, the middle quintile. Is that the mythical middle class, is it? It's the middle, it's the middle of the middle of the middle. It's a sort of middle class. It's the Gen X mm -hmm. um, largely and, and Gen Y. They are not... Um, only house owning, but there are lots of excuses that are made for that. And then, you know, there were the various fatuous comments about avocado on toast, which I won't go to. Smashed avocado on toast. Oh, it's smashed. I'm sorry. It was the, that's the key issue. It's smashed. You don't get a house. The next two quintiles, the fourth and fifth, are the interesting ones that I want to concentrate on today. The fourth quintile have an average income of about $50,000 per annum very low amount of wealth but they are in what we might call build to rent they can't afford to buy a house but they could afford to rent something uh and they but they rent on a private market they don't there's no public market for them and they're usually working they might be part of the working poor and they're renting from mostly private owners, and many of them are the people in the first quintile who own three, four or five houses, which are negatively geared so that the first quintile makes a lot of money and the fourth quintile pays them for it. The fifth quintile is, has an income of only um, 22,000 per household. So they're less than one tenth of the top quintile and if you've got that amount of money and that means that you know you have something in the order of uh, eight thousand dollars a year to put towards your your rental it means you can pay about 150 dollars a week for your house Right, okay. I mean, I, those, I'm, I'm slowing down and talking about those figures because I want people to realise that 20% of Australians need to rent a home somewhere but less than $200 a week, a dwelling, apartment, mm -hmm. wherever it might be. And we haven't attended to that. And we haven't attended to it since basically 1972. Um, at the time of the election of the Whitlam government, there were great intentions, but they weren't in government long enough to change the policies that had been enacted since the Second World War. So that, that lowest quintile is usually forced to rent from a government agency. Now it used to be local councils, hence it was called council housing. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, the Brits still call it that, don't they? The, 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 it's still the same way in Britain. It's still yeah. done by local councils, which I think is a very admirable way of doing it because they're closer to the ground. They know who their customers are. Mm. In, our, in our case, it was deeded over to the states after the Second World War, and we had state housing commissions, the, you know, the, the two biggies, of course, in New South Wales and Victoria. So those, that last quintile, those people paying $150 to $200 a week, were looking for public housing, and that's what it used to be known as. But the name change is the same thing that's recently happened as we realised that nursing homes are no longer called nursing homes because they don't have nurses in them. Right. And that's hugely problematical for aged care. In the same way, public housing is no longer called public housing because the public entities aren't building public housing. And so it's become privatised. Like almost everything else in Australia, we followed this kind of American privatisation neoliberal model. And so we sold off the, what public housing we had and we're starting to sell off even more. And it used to be that we had about somewhere at the height of it, we could have accommodated about 20% of our population in public housing. The right. very peak. And now it's about 4%. So one fifth. So you want 20% of people to be able to, to rent at a subsidized or a lower rate, but you know, 16% of them are missing out. Now the, the thing that obviously people are talking about social housing and they get it confused. Social housing is really well. I just want to talk about that lowest quintile. That's the difficult one. Build to rent, which is things whereby people build housing that might be uh, more affordable or more attractive. That's the sort of, you know, sometimes the Nightingale model from Victoria, or sometimes it's the boarding house program um, that was launched in the dying days of the last Labor government in New South Wales. Um, that's been carrying on for the last eight years. That that program has engendered quite a number of very small micro apartments for rent, but they're not really subsidised to the point, or they're not low enough for that lowest quintile. So there's the problem. How do we harness the government money that everyone's talking about? You should put it into social housing when we don't really know what social housing is. So there's my definition. It's Housing for the fifth quintile, which in today's terms is somewhere around, let's call it $25,000 a year income. Now, the next thing you have to understand is how is housing obtained? Let's say mass housing, a block of apartments, a row of townhouses or something. Imagine you're a developer and you want to build a set of, let us say, for instance, 20 one-bed apartments that you wanted to construct. The way in which you price them, the, the value of it, is that the final price for that one-bedroom apartment, and, and to keep the numbers in round figures and keep it easier, let's say it's 600,000. So you want to sell a one-bedroom apartment for $600,000, then the way in which most developers calculate that out is that $200,000 per unit buys the block of land. So the land cost is one third of uh, 
of the, of the final value. Then to build it, it's about one third. So you spend about $200,000 for a one bedroom apartment, which just to make it very clear with the numbers, and a 55 to 60 square meter apartment, it means that you're spending something around $3,000, $3,500 a square meter. I'm talking these numbers because it's really important because that's not what architects often talk about, the real cost of things. They has to pay for the car parking and has to pay for the landscape and has to pay mm -hmm. for all of the structure, the infrastructure for the preliminaries and everything for a builder to build it. And then developers want another third, another $200,000 to cover the financing, overheads, margin and profit. And that's where Australia has made seven of the top 20 most, uh, the wealthiest people in Australia got their money out of property. Mm -hmm. Not always housing, you know, some of them like the Lowy's had it in shopping centers, right. but other very wealthy people, you know, the Harry Trigger bots and so on of this world made it in housing and they made it because there's massive profits to be made in that margin. Now that's one of the reasons why everybody wants to be a property developer. That's why there's everybody who owns a home wants to improve it, wants to double it, put in a duplex, sell it for, so Australia has a nation of about 60% property developers, 60% of the population of the households at least are property developers. So it is a, because there are such amazing amounts of money to be made and because some of them go broke and things go bad, property developers become an absolute pejorative. It's a, it's a foul word to be using. It's almost the, it's almost the, uh, what is it? The, uh, it's getting close to the colorful racing identity. Um, moniker, that, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's the uh, the white shoe brigade. Remember mm -hmm. they were called. I do. Yeah. yeah. The apartment, if you want a five percent return on a six hundred thousand dollar apartment, it rents out for about six hundred dollars a week. One one thousandth of the value gives you a five percent return. Um, now I know I'm flitting around from talking like a real estate agent and a developer and so on. But I think architects don't know enough about this money. So at $600 a week, that is a house that could be rented by people who have the upper ends of the fourth quintile. But it's three times the price that a poor person in the fifth quintile can pay. We've only established that $150 to $200 a right. week is what they could pay for a house. So they can't afford it. So how do you cut the apartment that's cost $600,000 nominally? How do you cut it to $200,000? So 5% return to pay right. for the borrowing. The easy fix, which is in one of the pieces that I wrote for architecture and design is cut out the land and cut out the profit. So very easy to say, but what you do is you do not sell it. You hold it. Mm -hmm. So you're an organization, it's a not-for-profit organization. So you're not seeking profit. You're not seeking the margin. You're not for profit. And you, you, that's the first $200,000. So now the apartment's going to be held by the not-for-profit, but they've had to pay for the land, $200,000. They've had to pay for the apartment, $200,000, but they could rent it out for $400 a week. So we're in a bill to rent. So that's how commercially you could do build to rent. Because if someone's got 
uh, something in the order of $50,000 a week, $50,000 a year rather, um, then simple mathematics means that you know, they've got somewhere around $1,000 mm -hmm. a week. Um, that's gross. That's good. Yeah, that's gross. And then one third of that could go out on their, um, their rental, which might be $300, $350. Mm -hmm. So you might be able to do that in a bill to rent, but how do you get the apartment down from $400,000 to $200,000? You have to cut out the land. So who has land that they don't have to pay for? They don't have to buy. Well, the government. Right? The, the, the government does definitely. The government in two parts. The government of um, the state with uh -huh. its, its big state holdings and the federal government through the Department of Defence holds huge amounts of land within okay. our cities. You know, defunct rifle ranges, uh, training areas, huge um, plots of land set aside for Another form of um, ownership is the churches of all denominations. Mm -hmm. And the churches very early on in the 19th century, as they set themselves up, they took the best land, often on the ridge, on the hill, in the area. They built a church and it had grand curtilage around it, might have had a manse for the minister. Um, but that land's now paid off. It, it, it actually be, has become a burden to churches because if the congregation is not there, if there's not a number of people going to the church who, through their donations on a Sunday or their tithing are supporting it, then it becomes a liability. So many of the churches are realizing that one of the best things they could do is to change from worship to ministry, by which I mean, they are changing from churches where people go to worship one day a week to providing ministry as, it, as it's commonly called, particularly in the Uniting Church, to help the people of that parish, the traditional name for the area looked after by a church. So it has been done in the past. The Glebe in Sydney is named for the fact that the church, the Anglican church, had a huge amount of housing in that area on land that was given to it. So that land essentially is free to the church. Um, they could make money out of it, but maybe the best way to do it is to build social housing on it and the churches are coming to realize it. The third component of this is philanthropic organizations who buy land as part of the philanthropy and then have that land developed and they pay for the development of that land and they're looking for a return on the borrowings to build it. So they're the only three ways in which we can find land for free. Now, the government has no interest in it. There isn't and there hasn't been a government with a positive policy about public housing since Tom Uren in the Whitlam government and Brian Howe in the Hawke government. Why is that? Um, well, they're Labor governments for a start, so they understand social provision, not just economy. They, they want to run a society, not an economy. They, the second thing is that you need to be fairly high up in the government 
have a reasonable amount of status before you can bring this marginal issue of rental housing onto the plate. And Tommy Uren had that in, in spades. I mean, he was so extraordinarily respected. And Brian Howe had it as well, particularly in the social sector. Unfortunately, people who should have been more persuasive in that area, in the more recent governments, um, you know, not, not using any names, of course, here, but Jenny Macklin should have pressed harder for the federal government to establish programs for social housing, even though it's a responsibility of the states. But the states have abrogated it. Well, that, that's, that's a very interesting point you, you, you put there. And, and I, I dare say, um, Tone, that you're actually almost betraying your working class roots. Two of the three examples that you, that you provided were, were uh, private equity or, or, or private capital examples. You mentioned the Hawke government. One thing the Hawke government did was to bring in negative gearing to try and stimulate um, the housing. We, we had, a, I think it was a mini housing fall, I think, in the early 80s, mid-80s, whatever it was. Um, should something like that be brought in to stimulate but social housing or build, or, or build to rent from the government, uh, tax incentives, other financial, you know, um, sweeteners? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is, it is the role of the government to provide the land or provide the mechanisms by which land can be set aside because a good dwelling, um, a, good, a good house or apartment is no different in terms of what's built for somebody who is renting it for somebody who's owning it. In fact, there are arguments that a build to rent or particularly social housing model needs to be built better because right. it's, it's, it's a long-term investment and the people who are living there don't have the wherewithal to do the maintenance and so on. So you need something that's got lower maintenance, longer durability, better quality. So it costs slightly more, that's perverse, isn't it? Slightly more money for slightly less rent. The initiatives that we need aren't to put it out into the private sector. We've done that already. We've got, particularly in New South Wales, the community housing provider as a model, which means that the land and buildings, which were public housing, can be deeded over to a CHP, community housing provider, and they get that land and buildings for free, but they're in, they're, they have to maintain it and expand it from the rental that they get. Right. So it's essentially the government giving up and saying, it's all too hard, I can't maintain this land, I can't look after the housing, I can't do a rent roll, I can't look after everybody, let's do it on small areas. You go back to council areas, interesting, a lot of the CHPs have as their name the name of the electorate or the name of the area in which they operate because they're much more locally focused because they can concentrate on it, which is, I think, which I think is a really good thing. But the CHPs are struggling to learn that lesson to get the money organized that they can expand their portfolio. They're struggling just to learn how to rent it. It's only been operating for a, for half a dozen years now that, that they've really expanded that. There are over a hundred CHPs in New South Wales alone. So 
they need to be able to work their patch a little bit harder. The government needs to be able to say, the state government needs to be able to say, we will also, without competing with you, but we're going to actually develop land in small pockets and parcels for social housing. So you, the CHPs, you can look after this band. It might be built to rent. It might be people in the fourth quintile, the upper parts of the fifth quintile, but the really poor, the homeless, the poor, that is the responsibility of the government who says, not only are we putting the land in for free, we're not also, we're also going to be building it well, and we're going to have it paid back over 30 years or something like that with a, with a government loan and bond not looking for the money to come back in 10 years or 20 years, which is what a 5% return indicates. So it's, it's a difficult thing to say that there's one single solution. I think you need to understand that Australia has taken care of the top three quintiles so strongly that it needs to turn its attention to the lower two quintiles. And build to rent is quite different to social housing and they, need, they have these different mechanisms for them. The lessons that I think you learned from some of those things that we showed in that, that thing that you published, Franco, about um, different prototypes, different, different models, you know, archi architectonic word typologies. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the lesson, number one lesson I think from that is don't build a lot of it in one place. Right. Daisyville was a beautiful suburb. It's a fantastic design, but it's a failure because all of the people living there, apart from the 20% that was sold off um, after the Second World War, um, are of one socioeconomic status. So there is no sense in which there's anyone there to other than the people who've all reached the end of their financial um, means. You can't expect anybody to be maintaining gardens and looking after the public realm and the public domain if, if, if they're just struggling to stay alive. And if you then put all of those people all in one area, and then of course, if you do it in high rise, something like the 47 towers that the housing commission built in Victoria, right. in, across about 19 different suburbs, it's not just in North Melbourne and Collingwood and so on and South Melbourne, they're, they're all through, there's a much bigger program for towers in Melbourne than there was in Sydney where the towers are in Alexandria and Waterloo. The towers are doubly damned. You're putting lots of people, many of whom might have social or mental health issues, they might have drug and alcohol issues, and you're putting them all in one location without having counselling and assistance. That's the first problem. So the counselling and assistance comes later. Oh, we have to you know, provide counsellors on the site and whatever but it becomes difficult because everybody's in the same issue. So there's people with social issues in terms of noise, in terms of disruption and so on, and they're aggravating people who have the same sensitivities. So basically, basically but, but that, that's been largely sold, hasn't it? Because they've been interdispersing social housing throughout Sydney, at least. I mean, I know I, I worked for some time up at Warunga, which is a very, very um, leafy and, dare I say, well-heeled suburb. And I know for a fact that across the road from where I worked, there was social housing uh, interdispersed amongst 
squillion dollar mansions. Yeah, um, Warunga is said to be Aboriginal sort of stockbroker, but um, <laughs> I, th I think the issue here for me is that it's probably appropriate in those leafy suburbs to do it because the second part that's wrong with towers is that the higher you go, the more money you need. Right. It, it, it's a dictum that the less money you have, the, more, the closer you need to be the ground because you don't have the wherewithal to park your car in a secure garage or right. have, your, have your children in the latest uh, buggy so that you can get them up in the lift and so on. Poor, poor people actually have more possessions of larger size. Quite often they rely on having one or two cars because they're not reliable. Now they have cast off couches. They have cast off furniture. They have seconds and stuff. And it doesn't fit in the lift to get up there. They don't have the classic new Danish modernist furniture to, to sit on the, uh, the elegant designer rug. That's, which is what is shown in these designer apartments high up in the air. Right. So this is another problem is, and, I, and I, it's a sad thing to say, but it's not universal, but the poorer you are, the better it is that you're closer to the ground where you could use a garden to grow some food, where you could um, store your car somewhere close where you can actually see it from your window and make sure it's not being stolen, it's being looked after and so on. Um, that means that the towers that they've built the best thing they could do with them is sell them off to rich investors who could add balconies to them, mm -hmm. double them up, put extra finishes in them and the, the rich could live in them. But you can't do that until you've built at least that number, preferably double that number, pepper and salted through the suburb. So you have to buy some townhouses and duplexes, you have to buy some houses, you have to buy some small apartments and you have to buy them, the, the, the term that's used is pepper and salt, um, which I suppose is um, the seasoning to the, to the suburb. The problem we've got in New South Wales is that the state government's been merrily selling off housing in Millers Point and selling off some of the housing in the Waterloo Estates and so on, or they're about to, without actually building replacement housing. They're selling it off, giving out some of them to the CHP, and in fact, refusing their responsibilities to look after public housing. It's not a socialist imperative. It's a social democratic quality. Um, for instance, you, you take Denmark, which has about the same rate of home ownership in Australia, about 60% home ownership. 20% of their housing is public housing. Right. I think Germany is very similar as well, is it not? In fact, I think Germany is more public housing from... from but, but in both Denmark and, and Germany, as, as, as well as in parts of Scandinavia, as well as in lots of parts of Britain, mm. but not the big towers like the Grenfell tragedy, mm. the, uh, the scale of the housing is, is modest when it's fully public housing. There's one example in Britain, I think is really worth talking about because a friend of mine, an architect, well-known architect in Sydney, is his name, but he, he's Gauss, he's from Newcastle on Tyne, which is a really interesting city, you know, very gritty and so on. Uh, some people forget that 
It's uh, a city that across the Tyne on the other side of it, there's another whole city called Gateshead, mm. which has one of the finest Norman Foster buildings in it, but I won't dwell on that. In there, on, 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 the, on one of the hills back up behind the CBD, was an area um, which was called the Biker, B-Y-K-K-E-R. And Ralph Erskine, whom I think is one of the great architects of the 20th century, Ralph was asked to do a full study of what the local population wanted, and they were in low-scale houses. But much of it was so poorly maintained by the local council housing that it had to be taken down. But he kept a portion of it, renovated it, moved into several of them and had huge discussions with all the locals in that area about what they would wanted. There was a freeway plan to go around the outside edge of it, as there quite often is on the government land. And he built this thing called the Biker Wall, which many architects will know from the typology of it. It's a six to seven storey building that goes up and down. And it has walkways and access ways, both on the south sunny side, as well as on the north side. The apartments almost entirely face out towards the sun on balconies and walkways, and they have very small windows. And it was known for having this patchwork brickwork and so on. What was interesting is I went to see the building because it was one of my favorite buildings as I was a student, but it took years before I got there to see how good it, and it really is good. But it's walking in the existing area where the pubs are alive, the sporting grounds are used, the, the area is very well, well maintained, the sense of community has come back. So that defies some of the, the logic I was saying earlier on about pepper and salt. Um, this is a way in which you have to spend special attention to the housing area if you're going to have just public housing tenants in it. If you do do that, then you need counselling and assistance and financial services to help them. Um, you need all the economic supports that come with uh, uh, providing offices for government services and of course looking for employment services as well. So are we actually doing that here at all? I mean you, you've gone you've gone to you've gone to Scandinavia, you've gone to the UK um, and they are good examples but in terms of Australia are we actually doing anything similar and if not what should we be doing? I, I don't know of a single scheme that is seeking to address social housing in Australia. Certainly not in the grand scale of the Biker Wall. And, and not, I don't think it would apply here either. I think that, that it's just far too difficult to mix people whose incomes are all the same strata. Right. Um, I think it's better if you've got some people whose some of the incomes are five times what some of the other people are, but they mix together because they are all families, because they've all got children, they're all going to, they've got children needing to go to school, they need after school care, they need childcare and so on. Um, it's not a matter of um, whether you're rich or poor, all of those things. You need a good restaurant, you need a good um, laundry service and so on, and you, you, you provide it for everybody. The, there isn't one in Australia because we've privatised everything and we've pushed it out. What I'm looking for from the government is not, I think it's no longer viable in Australia for the government to undertake to build the housing. They've lost all the skill and all the 
abilities. And so the Housing Commission, which has been um, gutted in both New South Wales and Victoria, the two big cities, 40% of the population in just those two cities, um, you, if you've reduced down the Housing Commission, then you've lost the ability to be able to build and build sensibly and build well. So it has to be privatised, but you do need the policy. So how do you find, what do you do? And I think what you do is thousands of small interventions. You know, the old Chinese communist idea of let a thousand flowers bloom. And if they happen to get a few weeds, so be it. I'm reminded of the great Col James, the uh, director of the housing, the Fell Housing Research Unit at Sydney University. Um, he had this wonderful thing when you rang him up, uh, old-fashioned phone, <laughs> and he wasn't there and there's an answering machine, old-fashioned answering machine, and he talked to you and said, look, this is the Fell Housing Unit, please leave a message. And remember, this was his sign-off, make housing a verb. And I think that's so precise because I think that's exactly what you have to do. It's not about providing the physical entity of the housing. It's about making housing a verb. So what governments need to do is to be, is providing the finance and the initiative and the support to have a thousand flowers blooming. The ones that I'm working on that I know quite well myself are church-based. A number of sites where the churches have buildings which have outlived their usefulness for that. They've outlived their usefulness, as I was saying earlier on, from a number of points of view. There's no longer the congregation and what congregation there is wants to do more than just simply worship. They, want, they don't want to follow that. Uh, the ecumenical model that they're looking for is one of working in the parish, not praying in the parish. And so they converting them to housing. There's an enormous pushback against the local the local areas who think that the churches are important as, as, as heritage items. Right. I mean, what's interesting is from a number of different church denominations have all said, if the church doesn't have a congregation, it no longer has a use for that. We no longer have a use for that church. We can pray in a barn. Mm -hmm. that now. But what we really want to do is to do some social good to the to the area and convert it but a lot of the people who've never been to church they're not members of the congregation they don't they are nimbies saying oh but i love that church i love having that building there i never used it if i went to it and i don't know anything about it being defunct but i really like having it i just want it to stay the way it is which is a dreadful problem we have in australia with people wanting their their suburbs and their their life to stay the way that it is or preferably go back to the way it was. And they just don't have that enthusiasm because we don't have a design culture in this country. They don't have an enthusiasm for thing, seeing things change and get better. Do you think that perhaps, but if, if the government committed to whichever way possible to more building more social housing, we could kill, dare I say, three birds with one stone, the, the issue of not enough social housing, the issue of housing affordability and our rather moribund economic malaise that we've uh, that we've landed in. Do you think that would that would help? Yeah, I think there's a triple bottom line there. Yeah, I mean, it, and and you can see it through the triple bottom line idea that's being talked about. 
it's a monetary stimulus. It, it gets money circulating in the community because mm -hmm. it's money with very, very low interest rates. And it goes out to builders who are inevitably subcontractors, part of the community. They're not subsidies going out to people at the top end of town who are going to park it in their Parisian apartment. Mm -hmm. uh, so it will circulate. The second part of it is that you're addressing the social concerns of people, particularly in terms of mental health. Um, and the third part of it is if you do it at the right scale, and this is where the architects are really crying, if you do it at the right scale with the right approach to the building with high quality, smaller apartments, but better planning and better organization, then environmentally it'll be better. You'll have more people living per hectare not just dwellings per hectare, but more people per hectare. And you're going to have better access to community services, to transport and so on. So it becomes far more sustainable. There are a myriad of architectural firms who've been working on these things, but usually below the radar line. You've never seen them. The only place they might turn up is in the sustainability live awards, the sustainability awards that um, certainly the Institute of Architects and other places, you never see any of these slightly compromised, slightly um, misfit housing schemes, but architects are working on them. Mm -hmm. There's a whole coterie of firms that we know grouped here that could do environmentally sustainable housing for a social grouping if only the funding could come. Mm. And you could do it on, on plots of land where developers have got their fingers burnt. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'd be fabulous if there was a 10% housing crash. You want <laughs> housing for all. Yeah. What you want is a whole lot of developers who want to cash out of some land. And the government goes in and buys land. A piece here, you know, a 20 apartment group there, a 100 apartment group there, a 50 apartment group there. Um, you know, a, a housing that could have 20, 20 townhouses on it over here. Um, but that you know, it doesn't economically stack up if you're looking for the one third, one third, one third, you want your profit and so on. The government steps in and says, we'll buy that land. Now we'll give it to a community housing provider and you pay for the land, you build it and we'll allow you because it's social housing to have 10% extra floor space and you can go 10% over height. So nothing, nothing like a fire sale. Tone Wheeler, yes. Wheeler, thank you very much. It's been, it's been a pleasure to talk to you talk to you uh, again. Um, I hope next time that um, we may even meet once again in real life. Yes, I feel like I'm, I've just been painted into a corner as the, the uh, radical socialist incarnate looking for a uh, fall in housing prices. No. Not but if, you listen, if you've listened to the last 45 minutes, maybe some of that will make sense. Thanks, Branko. Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Architecture Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.